All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Insight Pines, where we take members of Alberta's political world, have a quick drink with them, and just talk about life and talk about what's going on in uh, the legislature. And even though we're starting to wind up session, we are still seeing everything kind of get brought to an end, but we still have some new bills that are coming in. And we're very fortunate to be joined today by the former Minister of Seniors and Housing, uh, Lori Sigurdsson. Uh, she's going to be talking to us about Bill 215. Lori, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm very well, Aaron. Thank you so much for inviting me. And you know what? It doesn't feel like it's winding down yet. It's really the end of May before we're done. So we still have a while to go yet in the assembly. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, I was kind of thinking about it the other day. And I mean, really, there's still another three or four weeks, but man, politics flies by. <laughs> I remember when we started the session, I just started thinking like, what's life going to look like in May? And it, it's just been flying by. But anyways, uh, before we get going any further, why don't you tell me a little bit about what we're drinking today? Okay, for sure. Thank you. Well, this, uh, the uh, owner uh, of uh, uh, Alley Cat uh, lives in my riding. I know that they've just changed hands not too long ago, but uh, still a very big promoter of Alley Cat. And it's sort of a local brewery. And I have Apricot, Apricot Ale. And I have a secret. So truth be told, I don't drink beer. That's fair. <laughs> only, only my, I have three sons and they drink beer. And so I checked with the youngest one who's 19. And he said, I said, go buy some beer from Alley Cat that you like. And so he got me this and uh, I'm not going to drink it. Uh, it's the middle of the afternoon right now or, <laughs> or noon, really. Yeah, <laughs> well, I got my coffee also, uh, but uh, certainly local brewery has been really uh, a trailblazer in the in the world of breweries and very happy to promote it. For sure. And uh, the one I picked up, uh, I picked up uh, Mangalorian. I'm a bit of a uh, Star Wars nerd. So anytime I see something related, I, I, I can't say no. It's just a twisting my rubber arm behind my back. But I was also really excited that you had picked Alley Cat just on a little bit of a cool note with them is that they do a lot of work with uh, Edmonton men's hockey team called The Rage, and they're an LGBTQ inclusive team. So it's kind of cool to see them working together and trying to get more people into the sport that may not otherwise get to. So I just think it's awesome that they're doing a lot of grassroots stuff like that. But needless to say, we'll do a uh, virtual cheers. So... With the cans, a little clink. Yes. <laughs> I'll say, I'll say, school. School. There that, we go. School, because <laughs> that's uh, you know, my last name Sigurdsson is Icelandic, and uh, oh. uh, so that's the tradition in Icelandic tradition. I think it's a Nordic thing. Oh, I didn't know you had the Icelandic background. That's fantastic. See, there you go. Everybody learned something new today. <laughs> All right. So before we kind of get into Bill 215, we like to get to know our guests a little bit. So who is Lori Sigurdsson out of the house? I know you did a lot of work within the social work side of things, and you'd spent a lot of time there, but who is Lori outside of the assembly? Okay, well, that's a big question. <laughs> <Aaron>. <laughs> yeah, it depends on who you talk to, I suppose. But you're right. Uh, you identified that that's my profession. I'm a social worker. I'm still a registered social worker in the province, uh, doing sort of macro social work, larger policy stuff. 
And I have been a social worker for about 30 years. Very proud of, uh, of my uh, profession and know that so many social workers across the province are, especially during the pandemic, are really contributing and supporting uh, so many people. And I just really want to say thank you to, to all of them for the work that they continue to do. Um, but I guess that is a big part sort of of uh, my interest in politics, because, of course, social work is extremely political because uh, we often are working with government funds to run programs to support people who are trying to overcome barriers, whatever they may be. And uh, so, of course, governments decide that, don't they? They decide whether you get that money or you don't get that money or this model is used or that model is used. So uh, it sort of made sense, uh, certainly, to uh, be political. However, I didn't... Um, I mean, I was always a political, but I was never could see myself running, really. And so, so I had to uh, shift my thinking quite a bit on that one. Um, but uh, and maybe maybe I'll just explain that too. like, you know, I'm uh, I didn't. I wasn't elected till I was 54. So I wasn't like I was a kid or anything. It was something I did very late in my career, really. And uh, I never would have done it. I mean, I couldn't see myself. I just didn't see myself in the arena. I'm, I was a single mom with three boys. I was always so busy with them. And then with my professional life, you know, I was always up to here, you know, with everything and didn't have a lot of money or, you know, connections or whatever. But one day, good old Rachel Notley, who was everywhere, and at that time, Brian Mason was the leader of the party, the NDP here in Alberta. I think they had two seats. <laughs> uh, she uh, called me and asked me to go for lunch. And at that time, I was sort of doing policy work at the Alberta College of Social Workers. And uh, she said, hey, do, let's go for lunch. And so I went for lunch with her. And she said, oh, so you know why I called you? You know, I wanted to go for lunch with you. And I said, well, you want to talk about social policy? Okay, sure. And she she goes, no, I don't want to talk about social policy. I want to talk about you running. And I was stunned because I just couldn't see that. And I just completely said, no, I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I can't. How can I do that, Rachel? Like, don't, you know, that's, that's ridiculous. I don't have the qualifications. You know, I did what is pretty typical of so many women, which is kind of sad that we sort of take ourselves out and we have to kind of be pulled in, you know, and asked several times. And that's what she did. She kept on asking me. And so eventually I agreed. And, you know, here we are all these years later. And uh, I'm very grateful that I let her influence me. But that's the thing about those. She's a lawyer, of course, so she can make <laughs> <other> good arguments. <laughs> And, uh, and, and she said to me too, I want strong women to stand with me and there's not enough women in the house, which is absolutely true. And so we need to have sort of a diverse group of folks making decisions because those are the best decisions because then everyone's considered just like what you started on the top of the show with Allie Cat promoting the LGBT. TQ community when they're on the hockey teams, teams, maybe people who felt like they might be bullied if they went to a regular league or something. So they're being inclusive. So, I mean, that's totally what we're all about as New Democrats. And uh, so she wanted more women and she picked me. And all these years later, I'm very grateful to her. And that's pretty cool to hear because you don't often hear stories about like more often than not you hear people seeking a nomination because they have some sort of connection to the party and they get in but it sounds like you were just straight up recruited for it 
Yeah, no, I don't think my story is so different for women, for sure. It might be a bit different for men. I think men sort of more, you know, feel like, yeah, I want to do that and I'm going to do it. So they stand up and do it. Whereas women, we have all these things going on and, well, I don't know. And I got this to do and I have my kids and, you know, so... So I think it is kind of more typical of women that we tend to hang back and uh, that, yeah, you have to be asked. And certainly now that I've been elected for a couple sessions, I, uh, you know, that's one of my jobs is that I do ask women to run. You know, I reach out to them and oftentimes they have the same reaction I did. And so I get to deconstruct that and, you know, uh, use some of those arguments that Rachel used on me. Well, and I mean, at the end of the day, that's politics. It's trying to influence a decision you want to see happen. And obviously, Rachel sounded like she knew what she wanted in terms of a party composition, even though she wasn't running or wasn't in charge of the party at the time. So that's actually a really cool historical piece. I I might have to have you back on one day to go more in depth on that, because that sounds like we could spend an entire show on it. (laughs) But so we'll move really quick. So Going from the social work into your eventual role when you served as Minister of Seniors and Housing, that must have been a fairly natural transition for you then, because like you said, there's a lot of the political involved in it. Yes, it's, it's sort of a different political, but you are yeah. influenced by the decisions politically. You know, that's what, I mean, it was different, don't get me wrong, and there was a huge learning curve for me, so I just want to, to acknowledge all of that. But I also want to say that I was very grateful to my professional background because I had an understanding of sort of macro systems, we call them larger systems, how, uh, you know, big bureaucracies, organizations work, um, you know, the diversity of the population we serve, all of that stuff. It was sort of a part of what I knew as a social worker and had, you know, worked in uh, various fields of practice on the front lines. And so I uh, did uh, have some, I thought, very good grounding uh, in that. Uh, you know, there was other aspects that I didn't know. And I mean, certainly I'm a social worker. So my, you know, that's the thing about having a great caucus like we do. People are have sort of expertise in education or they have more of an understanding of the oil and gas industry or they have more of an understanding of budgets and business and all that stuff. Uh, but, I, you know, my contribution really is a around uh, social services and understanding how they run and, uh, you know, uh, supporting people through a human rights lens, like making sure that, uh, you know, I really don't want to work through the charity model at all. It's much more a systems approach. And uh, so, you know, that's what I have to contribute uh, to the caucus. And I'm, uh, you know, very honored to be part of, uh, you know, we have amazing uh, 24 strong now uh, official opposition. Well, and I mean, kind of going back to what you said before, I mean, it sounds like you have all the qualifications you would need. So definitely don't discredit yourself for that. I think that's fantastic when you have people coming out of different worlds coming into politics because you really do need that diversity of opinion. So no, that's fantastic. I, I'm really starting to notice we could have a lot longer conversation. So I'll try to get back to the bill because that's the whole reason we wanted to have you here today. So Bill 215 has been tabled. So we're looking at essentially bringing back the seniors advocate here in Alberta. Uh, for context, for anybody that isn't aware, in 2019, the seniors advocate was blended into the health advocate's office uh, back in November 2019, I believe it was. And what this bill essentially is trying to do is to bring that back. So since you're the one who's sponsoring the bill, you can say way more about it than I can. Why are yeah. we uh, why are we doing this? 
Yeah, thanks so much, Erin. Yeah, well, we created in our, uh, when we were government in our mandate, uh, the standalone office that was dedicated to uh, seniors and, se- and senior services in our province. And so that meant there was a uh, person, it was actually Dr. Uh, Sheree Kwan Si, who was chosen to be the advocate. She was a PhD professor from the University of Alberta in sociology, specializing in seniors. So, you know, an expert had worked for years, uh, you know, with uh, seniors understanding their needs and how, what are the best programs and support. So we hired someone, we had a rigorous uh, recruitment process and we hired someone who was absolutely top of her field. And then there are her staff in the office who uh, would do sort of the day-to-day, sometimes helping to navigate uh, programs because we have a complex system in government and it's not just seniors in housing. The minister you'd think would be handling it might be health needs them. It might be uh, maybe there's a financial piece of it or community and social services. So, I mean, it could be a myriad of uh, ministries involved. And so we would have uh, caseworkers who would support you know, senior seniors uh, themselves, but also people who supported seniors and organizations, absolutely. But also Shri, Dr. Kwan Si, would look at the larger uh, systemic issues and we would meet on a regular basis. She did an annual report and she would tell me, okay, this isn't working so well, or have you thought about this? And it was just, it made me a better minister to have her you know, her expertise uh, really dedicated to seniors. So, of course, what we have now is completely different in Alberta. And as you said, at the end of 2020, um, the uh, UCP cut that office, completely uh, closed it down. And they said that uh, the seniors advocate role would just be amalgamated into the health advocate. But sadly, that's just not the case. We've, uh, you know, I just went through her report uh, not too long ago. They had the health advocates report and it really says nothing about seniors issues, about uh, how they're being served, uh, what's going on. It just, and, and, you know, we've, we're in the middle of a deadly pandemic. 1,200 seniors have died in continuing care facilities across Alberta. Many of these are preventable deaths. There's been a big problem in continuing care, which we knew about before, but it's gotten worse, of course, with the stress of COVID-19. We haven't heard a word. We haven't heard a word from her. And so it's really, she hasn't fulfilling on the title of her job. You know, she's an advocate for seniors and we just haven't heard anything. And we know we have a, there's a model in BC, which is a, an advocate there. And she has spoken up publicly. One of the things that she advocated for was rapid testing. And uh, the um, the government in BC accepted her recommendation. So she's influencing government, which is the role of the advocate. And unfortunately, that's not happening at all. And another kind of disturbing piece of it for me, certainly, you know, especially since we did such a rigorous recruitment process and wanted to hire the best candidate who would be a really strong advocate. Uh, the UCP stopped the recruitment process. Minister Shandro sort of reached in and stopped that whole process when they were looking for a health advocate and uh, appointed Janice Harrington, who Janet Harrington, who is uh, the former CEO of the United Conservative Party. 
So she doesn't have a background in senior. She doesn't have any expertise in these this area. So it's kind of a, you know, it's disturbing. It, you know, kind of breaks my heart. You know, this is meant to be sort of a, a watchdog of government, someone who will push and say, hey, you got to remember this. And when you're making decisions. But unfortunately, now we have a lapdog, really, you know, someone who's just uh, going to do their own bidding. So that's a little bit I said a lot there. So I'll <laughs> Stop and let you in here, Aaron. Sorry. No, that's fair enough. That's, I mean, honestly, with sort this sort of thing, the less I speak, I think the better it is for everybody because you have better information than I do. But sort of the one thing you sort of alluded to already is about what the difference is between the health advocate and it being merged with there and an independent seniors advocate. So I guess just narrowing in on that point, what is it that an independent seniors advocate can do different from what it's already doing within? The health advocates office. I realize you've sort of already alluded to that, but maybe we can expand. Sure. Um, well, certainly, I mean, one of the arguments that uh, this government uses to justify this kind of amalgamation is because, you know, so many uh, concerns about seniors are health related. And so, you know, there was overlap and we need to be more efficient and all this stuff. But we know that only 30 percent of the cases uh, with the seniors advocate before when it was a standalone office were health related. There's also financial issues. There's issues with housing. Uh, social services. And really, the health advocate is not equipped to deal with those things. So uh, they aren't really uh, focusing on the larger issues that they need to. And I mean, you know, you you want, I mean, it's just some, you know, important tenets of any government is that it's transparent. It helps us understand, you know, uh, what's going on. And if you read the advocate's report from the fall of last year, which is supposed to be about, you know, the work that she and her office are doing, there's really nothing about the cases. You know, it doesn't talk at all about uh, what the concerns are, you know, so Recently, in estimates, which is a a time when each of us as MLAs who are critics for particular uh, ministries, we get to ask the minister, you know, what about this? What about that? And so I did ask Minister Shandro, because that's the health minister, uh, about, uh, well, what have you heard? Like, have you met with her? And, you know, and it was just like radio silence, unfortunately. And he just assured me it's all being taken care of, but he couldn't identify the concerns concerns or what exactly they were dealing with. So, you know, I feel like because of the amalgamation, you know, perhaps they are dealing with the health part, that 30%. But, you know, what about the rest of it? You know, what about the rest of it? So the 70%, you know, and uh, our seniors being supportive. And I know that during this pandemic, it's been... A very challenging time for seniors. I think we've really let them down. And as I already said, 1,200 have died in continuing care. But also, too, people have been isolated at home. And that's very difficult. Uh, if you, uh, you know, we obviously we had restrictions and we didn't, we had to be very careful about uh, stopping the spread. And uh, that can really impact uh, your mental health quite negatively. I mean, there's just a myriad of concerns that an advocate could, could have really championed and uh, we could have had a better outcome. And there's no question that seniors have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. I think the last number I saw is about 61% of the deaths have come out of COVID have been seniors, whether it be in long-term care, continuing care, or whatever the case is. It's, it's a huge number. So 
I guess that sort of brings me to Bill 70 a little bit because that's, uh, again, I apologize for kind of taking away from your bill here, but it, it sort of plays together, doesn't it? Because we're seeing Bill 70, for those that aren't familiar, essentially what it's trying to do, it's uh, giving continuing care and long-term care facilities, uh, in essence, a waiver of liability so long as they acted in good faith in trying to take care of seniors within their care. Uh, There's other people involved, but for the purpose of this conversation, we'll keep it to seniors. Um, So what was on your mind when you read that bill? What are your thoughts? Well, it's really, um, you know, denying justice to families who uh, feel like the continuing care system uh, didn't support their loved ones and uh, maybe had premature deaths because of it. And what they've done is really, uh, it's not just uh, if they've, you know, in good faith taking care of people, they've actually raised the bar quite significantly in this legislation by saying it has to be gross negligence. So you have to prove that by gross negligence. And that's a very high bar legally. And of course, we know too that the legislation is retroactive. It just was introduced on Thursday, but it's retroactive to March 2020. So, I mean, it covers the whole pandemic period. And, you know, I'm not saying that there isn't uh, good providers out there. Certainly, we know the nonprofit uh, system and the public system. I know that people are working very hard and they're working very hard in all those systems. But it's really the private system, you know, a for profit system. So they're, you know, they're needing to make profit for their shareholders and uh, that they are sort of getting off the hook when they haven't necessarily provided enough PPE. They haven't respected that single site rule where they only have staff uh, working at one site. And, uh, you know, we know that had created a lot of spread. And these are multi-billion dollar companies that are making a lot of uh, money. And, you know, if I could, Aaron, I'll just tell you a little bit about some things that are moving in the uh, continuing care system, in the private system anyway. Yeah, by all means. Yeah, so Age Care is a, a big uh, company, and they have four sites in Calgary that were recently sold to a company called Axiom out of Montreal, and that's a multi-billion-dollar company. And it's not about seniors' care; that's about uh, wealth development. So it's just like they're they're seeing seniors, you know, care, continuing care, as a way to increase uh, profits so they can uh, make more money. So it's not about serving seniors. And this is a phenomenon that we know as it's kind of a newer term. It's called financialization. And so it's so these large wealth creating companies will buy up these companies so that they can make more profit and then support their shareholders more. And then they just recently bought also, I think it was the beginning of April, uh, four properties of Points West Living, which is another private uh care facility uh here in alberta so it's 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 you know that's the thing about for profit it's not about serving seniors it's about making a profit for their shareholders that's just how it works and so at least with the nonprofit and the public uh care homes that's their that's their goal they want to do that and they don't have to take out that eight percent or you know give or take a bit that needs to go to you know shareholders I mean, that can stay with uh, the, uh, you know, the residents, the staff can be supported. So it's like this whole, there's a huge issue with uh, for-profit care. And, you know, I just wanted to identify that. 
So, I mean, we'll have to see where everything goes here. And Bill 70 is going to be one that I think everybody in the province is going to be following for a while. Um, And I guess just to wrap things up here and go back to your bill. So bringing back the seniors advocate and you've sort of mentioned following the BC model, but if we were to bring this back, does this bill change anything versus what we had when we originally had it, or are we making any sort of tweaks to improve it? Yes. Uh, yeah, it's different. It is. Uh, it's a, a step further. <laughs> when we did it, we created a standalone office, but that advocate uh, did report to me. She wasn't independent. So when you report to the minister, you're not considered independent because then, you know, you are you vet her reports and those kind of things. And certainly we always had a very robust process, but ultimately I had to approve things. Whereas an independent advocate and, for example, just to help people, uh, we have have an independent child and youth advocate here in Alberta, and we have for years. And so that's an independent office that does not report to uh, the Minister of Children's Services, for example, but reports the legislature as a whole. So not only the government gets the reports, at the same time, we get the reports, meaning the official opposition. So it is a, a, a more public. And so uh, it can't, that message can't be controlled so much. So we did make the first step when we were government. And now this bill asks for the next step to make the senior advocate independent you know we need a champion for seniors we need that loud voice and so uh, it does uh, it does give that stronger voice to uh, the advocate to support seniors throughout the province so that's the, a significant difference fair enough well perfect well Lori, i just want to say that's a great place to wrap up thank you so much for coming on and sort of talking about your bill a bit i i got a lot better sense of what's going on with it so i appreciate your time and yeah thank you for coming on we'll have you again anytime Well, thanks so much, Aaron, and school. School.